Sam Tracy. And I'm Sarah Merrigan. And thanks for tuning in to Season 5 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs, including policy, science, culture, and so much more. This show is produced by Twid Media, whose members are all alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome nonprofit working to end the war on drugs. We also produce a weekly email newsletter and have some other exciting projects on the way. You can check them all out on our website, thisweekindrugs.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where Sarah and I are going to talk about some of the biggest drug news stories from the last week and some exciting things that are coming up soon. But first, a quick thank you to our sponsor, which this week is Tom Angel's Marijuana Moment. Uh, Marijuana Moment is a great website from which we get many of our stories as well, and uh, they're a sponsor of ours on Patreon, so please check them out. Uh, But yeah, Sarah, would you like to uh, get things started with our first big story? Absolutely. So this is a topic I think we've talked about a handful of times on the show, but not... uh, not in this much detail. And mm-hmm. so my story this week um, is about the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and its potential decision uh, whether or not using drugs during pregnancy is considered child abuse. So the specific mm. case that the court is considering um, is called In the Interest of LJB, and it deals with a child allegedly born going through withdrawal symptoms because of the mother's drug use while pregnant. Mm -hmm. And after the child was born, she took a drug test and it detected marijuana and opiates. So the Clinton County Mm -hmm. Children and Youth Services took legal and physical custody of the child, citing the Child Protective Services Law. Mm -hmm. And so it all sounds pretty cut and dry, um, but it's now, you know, it's going to the Supreme Court. That's its third hearing, right, for people who maybe are not familiar with how the U.S., Mm -hmm court system works. So the trial court ruled that the Child Protective Services law, quote, does not provide for finding of abuse due to actions taken by an individual upon a fetus. So they were ruling Mm -hmm. on the side of the mother in this case. The appeals court then reversed the ruling and sided with child services. And the the superior court judge, his name is H. Joffrey Moulton Jr., mm-hmm. which just seems like a very uh, legal judge mm-hmm. name to me. <laughs> and very, he said, yeah, very movie judge. <laughs> Under the plain language of the statute, mother's illegal drug use while pregnant may constitute child abuse if the drug use caused bodily injury to the child. And this is where it gets a little bit interesting because it breaks down what uh, requirements need to be met for for child abuse to be mm-hmm. actually to actually take place and so he said um, if children and youth services establishes that through mother's prenatal drug use she intentionally knowingly or recklessly caused or created a reasonable likelihood of bodily injury to the child after birth a finding of child abuse would be proper mm-hmm and so is this case, I guess I'm unclear, is would the child only have been taken away if this was child abuse? Like, is this case over whether the child should have been taken away or not? Or is this kind of for separate, they're trying to charge her criminally or something in addition to putting her kid into the system? 
Um, I think they're trying to charge her criminally also because the Women's Law Project, they're co-counsel mm-hmm. on the case, um, and they cite a specific incident in 2011 when a bill um, was introduced that would have amended the definition of child abuse, mm-hmm. and it um, contained an exception for mothers taking prescribed medic- medication, but for all other controlled substances, it would have added that to child abuse, and the bill failed uh, to make it yeah. out of committee. Okay. Um, and so the co-counsel is citing that as a reason why this shouldn't be considered a criminal offense. Right, because legislators seem to think that it's not currently criminal, and they just, in a way, refused to, to make that the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is just fascinating, because it does come down to so many of these cases with unborn children, and I feel like a lot of the time it ends up getting wrapped into the whole pro-life, pro-choice debate, because then people are arguing about when personhood starts and a lot of those groups are trying to use this and just as kind of a way to further their own cause to be getting certain precedent so it'll be interesting to see how this interplays with everything when they take up the ruling but also knowing supreme courts and i don't know pennsylvania's very well but at the u.s level just so many times they try to avoid these really big questions and then we'll just find some sort of technical thing to rule on Mm -hmm. so this, yeah, it could be really huge, but maybe they'll end up dodging this one, too. Yeah, it'll be interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely keep following this. We talked um, with Lynn Paltrow from the National Advocates for Pregnant Women in episode 96, and we'll make sure mm-hmm. to link to that. Um, yeah, we will keep folks updated. Absolutely. So moving on to our next big story, the New York Times published a really interesting article called How a Police Chief, a Governor, and a Sociologist Would Spend $100 Billion to Solve the Opioid Crisis, where they actually surveyed 30 experts from various groups. Um, I guess they just wanted to pluck three out for the headline, Uh, but it included all various politicians, doctors, public health officials, academics, uh, police, and more. And they were asked how they'd spend $100 billion over five years. And in the article, they framed this as being slightly less than federal funding for HIV AIDS. I guess probably just argue that this is a reasonable thing for the federal government to do because they do it for for other health crises. Mm -hmm. And each person allocated the funding very differently with some interesting trends emerging, which we can talk about. But all of their answers in the article, they represented them in a really good kind of graphical way where they all have a box and broken up into smaller boxes that take up the amount of area uh, with colors and stuff. So I recommend checking out the article. I'm not going to describe every box (laughs) and how big all the various boxes are for a podcast. But um, yeah, if you're on your phone, check that out as well. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. But to talk about some of the very high level stuff out of those 30, they kind of broke it down into the four categories and 15 of 30. So half of the group emphasized treatment, eight emphasized demand, four emphasized harm reduction, and then three emphasized supply. And it was just interesting to see at first, um, you know, treatment is what you would expect, Medicaid expansion and medication-assisted treatment being some of the big ones. Um, So that was good to see that um, that was a primary focus. Um, But then when I saw demand, I assumed that that was, you know, DARE programs and that sort of thing. So I thought it was bad at first, but when they went into the actual interview with the questionnaire with people, um, a lot of them were more focused on things like childcare, family services, job training. And there's one quote that I really loved um, that I just wanted to pull out here, and it's from Dr. Anna Lemke. 
the medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford, and she said, until we provide people with an alternative source of dopamine in the form of family connections, meaningful work, and a sense of purpose in their lives, the problem of addiction will continue to grow. Mm. And I just never seen it framed this way before. That, about it reminds Har- me a lot of uh, yeah. Johan Hari um, mm-hmm. talking about the opposite of addiction. Or is it the opposite of addiction yeah, exactly. being um, like connectedness? It, it, it's not sobriety. Yeah. It's connectedness. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just such an interesting framing of, hey, maybe we should be using funding to provide alternative sources of dopamine to to encourage people to use those safer methods, basically. (laughs) That is a really interesting way to say that. I like that a lot. Mm hmm. I think. And so then the other two categories were harm reduction, which we talk about a ton on the show. (laughs) SIFs, drugs, checking, naloxone, needle exchange, all that good stuff. And then three emphasized supply. So local police, which meh, but also prescription monitoring. So some things like improving those systems, which I think is pretty reasonable. Um, but it was only three out of 30, so 10%. Um, and it's good to see that we're really shifting away from um, that being basically the only thing people would do. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, you know, I was I was going to say I was slightly disappointed that I think four out of 30 breaks down to like 13%. So it's like 13% Mm -hmm. of people emphasizing harm reduction. But I guess that's more than the 10% emphasizing supply. So that's Mm -hmm. a positive. (laughs) Yeah, at least they beat them out slightly. And a couple other little takeaways. uh, Two-thirds of them would increase funding for local police, drug task forces, or international interdiction. So two-thirds of them while they didn't emphasize police, they gave at least some of this additional funding to them, which I think is still kind of concerning that it's a consensus that at least some of it should go towards that, but I don't think that's very effective. Um, Mm -hmm. But then one thing that was nice was that zero of them would provide any funding at all for a border wall. So that was actually talked about specifically, and everyone, including the police folks, agreed that that would not be an effective way to to reduce the supply. Yeah, and I think if folks want to hear more about the border wall. Uh, I don't remember exactly which episode it was, but we talked to Sanho Tree, um, and mm-hmm. he is, I would say, an expert on that subject. And definitely mm-hmm. listen to that. Yeah, he's done some great <laughs> videos and stuff on it, too. Uh, so our next story is, I guess mine are both dealing with the court system this week. Um, this one is in Oklahoma, however. And a Tulsa federal court ruled that medical personnel have the legal authority to forcibly administer antipsychotic medications against the will of Benjamin Rodin. And Benjamin Rodin is accused of bombing a military recruitment office last July. Um, and he's been described by prosecutors as a disgruntled veteran. He had he was discharged um, in 2014, had some very negative experiences with the Air Force, the Marine Corps, and seems to be taking out his rage and uh, allegedly by bombing. Um, He cited religious reasons and a constitutional right to be free from medication in his argument as to why he should not have to take these antipsychotic drugs. Um, But the federal magistrate said that a sealed medical report submitted by the government and the prosecution was enough to meet the necessary evidentiary burden. Mm. And so to be clear, this is he's still in trial and they're administering this to him while he's in custody, pre-conviction and everything. This isn't as part of his 
treatment slash punishment or anything? So um, on August 29th, he was actually found incompetent to stand trial. And so mm-hmm. they moved him mm-hmm. from like jail to a medical facility. And that's where he's Got been. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is part of trying to make him competent for trial, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, which I find really interesting, I guess. And so nowhere in the article, um, nowhere that I could find, did it state whether or not Rodin was on antipsychotics or any kind of medication at the time of the bombing that he's charged with mm-hmm. with going through. Um, and so it's very, it's interesting to me that he would be given medication um, and then that would potentially make him competent to stand trial and tried for actions that he may have performed while he was unmedicated. Um, also incompetent in the same way. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this is a, reminds me of a story we had talked about a little while ago. I, I forget what it was, but basically the idea of, yeah, having whether you can be guilty, like basically, I think kind of what you're getting at, like, are you really the same person in a, in a sense of like, should you be held liable for things that happened during those times? And I guess I could see it both ways in that, I mean, we uh, punish people for drunk driving when they're in a very different state of mind related mm-hmm. to drugs um, and still hold them guilty for that. But it is a different thing, though, because it's it's different to ch- choose to consume drugs that impair you rather than to just have not had the drugs that would have made you better mm-hmm. if your natural state was in the state that caused the, uh, the crime. Yeah, and I guess maybe the question becomes... Uh the degree of recklessness, whether it was not having access mm-hmm. to the medications or, you know, being aware of the diagnosis and mm-hmm. choosing not to take the medication. Um, there are so yeah, many because things. As a veteran, I wonder if this was already on their radar before, or if this was something that came up later. Exactly. I mean, it took them, he was, uh, the incident happened early July and it wasn't until August 29th that he was moved from jail to a special medical uh, facility. So Mm-hmm. I have a lot of questions. Um, I think this is this is one that I'll be following closely. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it does bring up a yeah a lot of interesting bigger questions that when we get more follow up on this would be interesting to explore. Exactly. And speaking of um, some really big strange questions, this is. <laughs> What my next story, um, it's something that I've been seeing around a lot, and I thought it would be good to talk about. Um, the Baltimore Sun, uh, they've got an article uh, talking about an axe throwing bar that's coming to the area uh, that opened, that's going to be opened in the Highland Town neighborhood in April. And yeah, axe throwing <laughs> bar. Um, so this is something, yeah, I've been seeing. I, I saw it originally a few months ago because. One is actually opening in Somerville, Massachusetts mm. uh, um, this year as well. Um, and so they're run by a company called Urban Axes, which started in Philadelphia in 2016. Uh, then they opened a location in Austin, and now they're opening the, at least these two others, maybe more of them. Um, and while I think it you know, sounds like an interesting concept and maybe it could be fun, it's just mind-boggling to me that we're fine with this as a society (laughs) that like Mm -hmm. there's no politicians or anyone who's freaking out about this that this is just something that no one really blinks over um when we're having a place where people can consume 
alcohol and throw axes. I mean, I'm sure it's controlled, but I it <laughs> seems like it would be, you know, maybe the equivalent of an archery range. I mean, but, like, I've never been to an archery range that has a bar in it, and I feel like people would be opposed to that, too. Yeah, I, I didn't... There was a story about gun ranges that wanted to have alcohol permits. Um, oh, wow. I've never seen one of those. I was thinking, like, oh, that would be absurd. Oh, I thought, I thought we that covered that well. here. That, hmm. Um, but no, I do remember seeing that and mm-hmm. that, you know, got shot down completely. Um, but sorry, pun there. <laughs> thank you. Oh, that was totally unintentional. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, this is, it, I mean, axe throwing in general, you just kind of throw me off because that's not something I think of people doing all that often, but I guess maybe that's the novelty right. of it. Yeah, and it does sound like, you know, kind of a fun thing, and I'm sure it's a very controlled environment, and they might have, like, a coach person there to show you how to do it safely, and there's probably lanes where it's all blocked off and everything, but I just can't help but think, I mean, this week I was at uh, the Cannabis Control Commission public hearings in Massachusetts where we're talking about whether there should be licenses for social consumption. Um, so basically just allowing marijuana bars, period, with no axes, <laughs> no knives, no arrows or guns. Uh, but people are opposed to that. And then they see this and like, oh, great. That sounds fun. And uh, I, th- I think it's probably that both should be legal as long as, you know, you're doing this axe throwing thing safely. Uh, but it is fascinating to see that our society is so comfortable with alcohol. It really is. It's, and it speaks, I think, to, yeah, the societal norms. But I'm also, I guess, uh, presuming the bartenders will be following kind of the same code of, or the same, uh, like, uh, observing for signs of impairment. But I do wonder, mm-hmm. you know, what... I hope more than normally. Though. Yeah, like at what... Um, mm-hmm. Is there going to be a set number of drinks that they, they'll serve people before they say, hey, like, you can't go throw axes now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you, you get to pick. Um, this is... Right, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you can only give us your ticket or whatever. You'll have to go check it and out, it, I guess, and let us know. <laughs> yeah, ho- yeah, hopefully it, it, it opens before I'm out of the area. But, yeah. I think this would be a very interesting on-site reporting thing. So we'll follow up on this, listeners. <laughs> and now uh, just a quick word from our sponsor. If you work in the cannabis industry, consume marijuana, or just support drug policy reform, you need to know about breaking policy news that affects you. Marijuana Moment is a daily newsletter that helps you stay on top of all the latest and most important state, federal, and international cannabis developments. Brought to you by longtime legalization activist Tom Angel, Marijuana Moment puts a concise yet comprehensive overview of cannabis news in your inbox early every weekday morning. If you need to know what's happening in marijuana, wake up to Marijuana Moment and rest assured, you'll be ready for the cannabis news that's driving the day. Subscribe now at marijuanamoment.net. And now for our quick hit headlines. After an extended delay, Ireland's health services executive has decided the country's first supervised injection site will open in Dublin, subject to planning approval. Dr. Eamon Keenan, head of HSD's addiction services, said the sites allow, quote, a marginalized group of society injecting drug users who may be homeless to access a harm reduction service that will improve their health, access them into a range of medical and social services, and contribute towards a reduction in drug-related deaths. 
On February 5th, Canadian pharmacy chain Shoppers Drug Mart notified the Ministry of Health about a case where a customer was supposed to get a naloxone kit, but received fentanyl instead. Now they have investigated the matter, and Shoppers announced that it was an isolated case of human error and that there is no risk to the public. After losing a lawsuit in 2014, Gregory Zillow and the American Civil Civil Liberties Union are taking the marijuana sniff test ruling to the state Supreme Court. The state has 21 days to file a brief in response before the ACLU can file a closing brief, and this can be ruled on. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, a Democrat from New York, has become the third Senate sponsor of the Marijuana Justice Act, introduced by Cory Booker of New Jersey and also sponsored by Ron Wyden of Oregon. It's widely speculated that Gillibrand is eyeing a presidential run in 2020, and this shows that marijuana legalization is gaining consensus among Democrats. And now for our weekly forecast. Mine is a little bit further out than weekly, but after... Months in custody, a U.S. federal judge ruled on Thursday that Joaquin El Chapo Guzman will face trial on September 5th, 2018. And Tuesday, February 20th, is the anniversary of the 21st Amendment being introduced in Congress. So a little bit of this week in drug history for you. Uh, This happened in 1933, and it moved incredibly quickly. It was approved by... uh, all the necessary states throughout that one year and was ratified on December 5th, so less than 10 months after being introduced. And what many people don't know is that many states had stopped enforcing prohibition before the 21st Amendment was passed, which draws some really interesting parallels between alcohol prohibition and marijuana prohibition. And that is all for this week. But before we wrap up, we want to say a special thank you to our sponsor, which is Tom Angel's Marijuana Moment. If you haven't checked out Marijuana Moment, make sure you head on over to their website. And that's it. We will see you next week. again for listening to season five of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Tracy and me, Sarah Merrigan, and produced by Chris Harris. If you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that new episodes will be sent straight to you. If you really liked this episode, you can help other people discover us by writing a quick review in iTunes or wherever you're listening. And if you absolutely love this episode and want to support our work, you can make a one-time contribution using PayPal, become a monthly supporter on Patreon, or even sponsor an episode. For links to those and to learn more about our other projects, head on over to thisweekindrugs.org.